So in this morning, Aya Santusika is going to introduce the fire sermon to us. Oh, I don't know what that is. So I'm going to sh screen share in now. Here it is. Maybe you can make the text a little bigger. Okay. Let's see. Like okay. That? Yeah, that's good. Okay. I think you can all see the the text for the sutta called Burning, or it's often referred to as the Fire Sermon. And I want to give you a little bit of background on this. Uh, situation, because always when we when we see a sutta, there's a, a context, and the Buddha is talking to certain people, and he uses the language that's beneficial for them. And so, we yesterday we looked at the very first discourse, uh, setting the wheel of mo of dhamma into motion, and so at that time he was staying with the five monks that he had been living with before, before his enlightenment. And it's uh, the, the information I'm going to share with you comes out of our Theravada Vinaya, so the backstory, if you will. And so while he was staying with the five monks, during those early days after his enlightenment, it says that he was talking to them about the Dhamma, almost constantly. I'm sure they were practicing meditation as well. And two of the five would go for alms and come back with enough food for all six of them on one day. And the next day, the other three would go and come back with enough food for all six of them. And that's all that they did. So it was really an intense period of time. And as we saw in the sutta yesterday, one monk, Anya Kundanyo, he, he um, saw the Dhamma, he entered the stream. In the next sutta that we have, which is not one we're going to cover in this retreat, but in that one where the Buddha talked about not-self, all five of them became arahants. So really the Dhamma fully communicated and the monks he was staying with uh, fully developed. And then the Buddha, uh, at some point, started to wander by himself. And he went to a village uh, called Uruvela. And there were some um, matted hair ascetics practicing there. And the leader, his name was Uruvela Kasapa. So Kasapa is a very common name, and uh, he was probably re referred to as Uruvela because he lived near the town of Uruvela. And he had 500 followers. Now these numbers are often not exact, of course, it, it means a lot, but in this case, they stick with this kind of, he had 500 followers, 
And he also had two brothers, and one of his brother, both of them lived downstream along um, the Ganges. And the second brother, the middle brother, had 300 followers, and the youngest brother had 200 followers. So when the Buddha arrived at um, Uruvela Kasapa's place, he asked if he could stay in their fire chamber. So the matted heresetics were fire worshippers. Um, they were they were very austere. Uh, they had this long matted hair. Um, I think they were probably naked ascetics. And so they were living a very austere life. And the uh, the leader, Uruvela Kasapa, says to the Buddha, "Well, it's all right with me if you stay in my." fire chamber in the fire room, but I have to tell you that there's this poisonous serpent that's got psychic powers in there. So this this serpent would be called a naga, and a um, very formidable kind of being. And the um, the the Madhiharasetic, the Kasapa, he's concerned for the Buddha's safety. And he says, you know, you, you can't. You shouldn't stay there. But the Buddha asks again, and he tells him again. But this serpent with this very poisonous venom is in there and has these psychic powers. And you know, I wouldn't advise it. But it's okay with me. And the Buddha asks again, and then the Buddha finally says, "I don't think that this serpent's going to hurt me." And Uruvela Kasapa says, okay, uh, do, as, do as you wish. And so the Buddha goes into uh, this fire chamber, fire room, and he spreads out a mat and he sits down to meditate. And the serpent is angry at his presence and makes smoke. He breathes out smoke. So these Nagas are very much like our mythical dragons. And who knows if these things actually existed or not. Uh, there are some accounts of seeing enormous uh, serpents, snakes, in the Southeast Asia, in Southeast Asia. But anyway, the Naga is breathing smoke, and the Buddha thinks to himself, well, what if I, uh, one way of, of saying it is enter the fire element, what if I match this Naga's heat with the same heat, but I don't harm it at all. I don't harm its skin, I don't harm any part of it. And so then the Buddha with his psychic powers, which I think probably came on full once he was enlightened, because we don't have, as far as I know, much of a record of psychic feats before that to any degree, to any great degree. So he was able to also produce smoke. So he's matching the Naga's behavior. And then the Naga's even more angry and starts to breathe fire. And the Buddha also is able to produce fire. So the whole chamber is like lit up with fire and the Madhidhara ascetics are gathered outside looking and they're going, oh no. The beautiful, you know, the beautiful monk um, is is being uh, consumed, devoured, um, 
destroyed by the serpent. Well, of course, that's not what happened. Um, this meeting fire with fire but not harming the Naga caused the Naga to calm down. And by morning, the Buddha had put the Naga into his bowl and he brought it out and he showed Kasapa, his, um, the powerful Naga. And so Kasapa was really amazed and he said, this monk certainly is very powerful, but he's not an arahant like me. And so the Buddha stayed nearby, but he, but he offered the Buddha to stay. He said, if you stay here, we'll take care of your food and you know, you're welcome to stay here. So he was very impressed with the Buddha. But then there was a whole series of these incidents where there would be some really um, amazing thing happening. Like during the night, these four devas called the four great kings come to the Buddha to hear the Dhamma. And this happens a lot in the suttas where devas come to hear the Dhamma. And they stand in the four quarters and they're lighting up the entire forest with their splendor. And in the morning, Kasapa says to the Buddha, what was that? You know, who, who was visiting you? You know, it's like, and he says, it's the four, the four great kings, um, David kings to come to hear the Dhamma. And so again, Kasapa is like, wow, this monk is really powerful. He even has the Deva kings coming to visit him, but he's not an Arahant like me. And... And we actually have a record in the um, Taragata, the poems of the enlightened monks from Kasapa himself, who talks about his own arrogance at this time. And this, a number of these things happen, and then finally the Buddha thinks, Kasapa is just not getting it. He finally just says to him, you know, you're not an Arahant, and you're not doing anything that's going to bring you to Arahantship. You're not practicing in a way that's going to make that happen. And then Kasapa bows to the Buddha and asks if he could become a monk with him. But first he, he talks to his 500 followers. And they say, look, we were all clear that we wanted to follow the Buddha from the very first night. So yes, let's do it. You know, so they also all become monks and they take all of their their matted hair that they shave off and their fire-worshipping implements and they throw them into the Ganges. Not the best practice, by the way, but here we are 2,500 years ago. And then all that floats downstream and his middle brother, his brother sees it and he the, the, he and his 300 followers are like, oh no, something's happened to my brother and, and his community. So they come to find out what's going on. And then the third brother also sees all this coming down the stream, and he has does the same thing. So now there's the two other brothers and collectively their 500 followers, and they all become monks uh, with the Buddha. And that leads us to this uh, teaching that he gives to all of them. So this is the, 
This is the context we're in right now. And being that these men were devout in their practice, I mean, this is something that you see quite frequently in the suttas. The people the Buddha is talking to are serious practitioners. They've already done a lot of meditation. They've done a lot of renunciation. And now they're listening to this talk. And they're fire worshippers. So the Buddha is going to talk about the burning. So on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Gaya, at Gaya's head, together with a thousand bhikkhus. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, all is burning. And what bhikkhus is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as a condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, I say. And then he goes on to say the same exact thing about the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition and all of the other components that we saw listed with the eye, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, and with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, aging, and death. With sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, I say. So this part is really, um, I think we want to scroll okay. up a little bit and, and just look at what this Sorry. means. It's okay. Mm -hmm. So the... You know, obviously he's talking about the six internal sense spaces. Or, or, let me, the way that's described is the parts of the body, these organs that bring in the information from our world to us. And this is the only way we know the world, through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And that... Every, those, those sense organs, and then whatever they're seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, or thinking, those are all on fire. And then when we have an object that we're seeing, or a sound that we're hearing, etc., consciousness arises for that particular purpose, to make sense or to... Um, understand or to perceive, you might say, at a very, very um, basic level, you know, what it is you're hearing, what it is you're seeing. This eye consciousness, he says, is also burning. And then the contact, which comes from the internal sense organ, the external source of input, 
and the consciousness, that's what causes contact. That's when you actually have an experience of something. That contact, that very point of you know, recognizing there's something here that is also burning. And when we have contact, we automatically have feeling. And many of you will recognize this as a portion of the chain of dependent origination. And this chain of, you know, having um, a body and mind and having the sense organs, having the sense input, having contact or conscious awareness of it, contact, feeling. There's nothing you can really do to stop that process. You can't interrupt it. It just goes like falling dominoes or something. You know, it just happens. But then whatever feeling there is, that's also burning. And it's interesting. It's, it's quite powerful to think of what it's burning with. You know, uh, it's with the, the three poisons, you might say. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Here it's translated, it's lust, hatred, and delusion. And then what comes from all of that? Birth, aging, and death. And the sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair that comes from the, the dukkha, the suffering of birth, aging, and death. So this is, this is what we see in the chain of dependent origination. The Buddha very much spoke in many ways on many topics with this idea of cause and effect. So there's, you know, the way that he recognized how Dhamma works is to see that there are causes, there are reasons. This is why when we have feeling about something, you know, we may feel like, oh, I shouldn't be angry or I shouldn't feel um, hurt by this thing or I shouldn't whatever. It's really kind of unfair to ourselves to say that. It's like there are reasons why we feel the way we feel. And to be able to just open to it and accept it first before we want to, you know, do anything to process it or um, shift it or act upon it. You know, to really appreciate that there are causes that have brought us to this moment. And so the Buddha makes this statement, and then he talks about seeing thus. So since I, he's saying since he's recognized this, and when people recognize this, the instructed noble disciple. Now this is a very important phrase. The Arya Savako, the noble disciple, is one who has experience with the Dhamma, is a disciple of the Buddha understands the Dhamma. So it's not an ordinary person. I mean, I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but I know for myself, I can look back at the way I saw things and the way I reacted to things as an ordinary person. Again, nothing wrong with that. But once you know the Dhamma and you see things in that um, perspective and really have a deep understanding of how things work, then you look at things differently. You see things differently and you respond differently. And he says, once the noble disciple understands this burning, then they experience, this says revulsion. Um, I am not 
too keen on that translation, um, but it is possible, uh, that part. It's, it's also could mean just you feel dis disillusioned by the sight, sounds, tastes, smells, touches, thoughts. You're not bought into it in the same way as you might have been before, wanting it or wanting it to get wanting to get rid of it. It's it could be as strong as revulsion, um, but it it could also just be being disillusioned or being disenchanted is another uh, word that's used to translate this. Some people feel like disenchantment is too soft, too light, uh, but you get the idea. A lot of times these different English words that we can put to a poly term, this is nibida, this is, they're different words can give us a, more of a sense of what the term actually means. It's that whole range. You know, it could be something like also a turning away from, because it has the word re in it, it has the those two, which is like, you know, to turn away. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it mm -hmm. could. You're like tired of it. Yeah. You know, it can be a turning away. You're just like, ugh. <laughs> you know? And not, not the suppression turning away, but just no interest kind of a thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And this is towards the eye, towards forms, towards eye consciousness, towards eye contact, towards whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether painful, pleasant, or neither. Experiencing that same, I'm kind of done with this, you know, it's like I'm not interested, or revulsion at the peak maybe of, of intensity, towards the ear, towards nose, tongue, body, mind, towards whatever feeling arises, you experience this. When we experience this nibbida, this um, disillusionment, then the noble disciple becomes dispassionate. You really lose the passion for having or getting rid of. Through dispassion, the mind is then liberated. Like we're just not caught up in the sense world in the way we were in the past. Now that doesn't mean we don't appreciate or enjoy beauty in the, in the natural world. We see a lot of expressions of the, uh, the enjoyment, the, the awe that um, some of the bhikkhus particularly had with the, with the forests and the mountains and the animals of the forest. and. You know, it's it's not like there isn't a, an appreciation, but there isn't that stickiness, that kind of where the self is involved in wanting or wanting to get rid of. This is a very, very important distinction. And so at this point, when the mind becomes liberated, there is the knowledge it's liberated. So this is also something you see again and again and again. It's not just that something happens, like when an insight comes in your, in your meditation or in your experience, even it may well be when you're not meditating, but if an insight comes and you feel the feeling that, it, that comes with it, and, you, and then to really consciously know 
that that insight has come and you kind of like log that um, and and, re and recall it so the Buddha is, is you know there's always this and we saw it in yesterday's Sutta too then you know that the first noble truth has been uh, this dukkha has been understood you know that um, the cause of the dukkha has has been abandoned etc and here the liberation happens and then you know that the mind is liberated and then you know that there's not going to be another round of rebirth there's no craving there's no drive to continue to exist there's no drive to not exist. It's just peace. Destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. This is the purpose of the holy life. What had to be done has been done and there's no more for this state of being. So this is what the Buddha said and elated the bhikkhus delighted in the Buddha's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the thousand bhikkhus were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. They all became arahants on the spot. So now, of course, the important question for all of us is how do we apply this in our life? How do we practice with this? And I'm sure that we both have some ideas about that, you know, that we, we observe what happens in our world, we do what we can to make things as good as we can, and we also at the same time work with letting go of our attachment to it all, of our, you know, reliance upon it. You might think, well, how can I stop relying upon it? I need the, the very um, elements of the world to give me the sustenance that I need to carry the body. And that's true. But the more we develop the mind in this way, the less concerned we are about that. And oddly, maybe we could say, or magically or mystically, um, the more we let go, the more comes to us, in a sense. And I'm not talking about, um, well, there are, you know, some, some kind of efforts to use that ability to let go as a way to, like, you know, fill the coffers, and that's not the point, you know. It's like what we really want to be filled with is the peace and confidence in the Dhamma. You know, can I stop that sharing or do you want me to leave it on? Oh, I think we can stop the sharing. Yeah, and people can see you more fully. Yeah, and I also am interested in anything you might want to add, I, uh, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, the image of the burning is just so such a great image, you know, because it's so directly speaking to the experience of, you know, when we are inside of the, you know, of the attachment, of the craving, of the fear or whatever, you know, is activated by that identification. That's how it's experienced, you know, in the mind and in the body as a, 
as a burning really and and you know that the Buddha had that you know as we as, as I was guiding us yesterday in the Buddhanusati you know that one of the qualities of the Buddha is his great capacity you know to really understand you know what kind of a teaching story or what kind of examples you know would really get through to the to the person he was teaching and with the fire worshippers of course you know anything in regards to fire would really land well you know because that's that's the center that was the center of their practice and it's just such an it's just such a perfect you know it's such a perfect situation that how he was teaching and how they were receiving it and, and the whole uh, story is, is just great I really, I really think and you know and how that the, the process of burning you know sometimes it's it's you know there's examples also in the suttas where where the you know the refinement of gold for example you know there's a lot of fire involved in that a lot of heat and then the dross you know of the of the gold is kind of removed through the repeated melting and, and burning and, and boiling of of the material at hand, you know, and it there's an increasing purification which happens and I think, you know, the conscious experience of the burning of of uh, greed, hatred and delusion leads to that nibida, you know, leads leads to the letting go. Because we can see, you know, if we pay attention that you know, all of these ideas we have about certain situations and then, you know, which then kind of translate into grasping, clinging and and attachments, they they are just not like that. And then in the burning process we we really take a good look at that and and then allow it to change us, you know. Reality uh, allow that to change us and then arriving at, you know, what Asantusika was um, saying, you know, Nibidam is the Pali word in, in the chanting, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Sutta, and one way how Nibida, Nibida can be translated many different ways, one was, you know, disenchantment, but I think the literal translation of Nibida means not finding, you know, so looking and looking and not really finding what we are looking for because we are looking for some kind of unchanging core or essence or, or something, you know, we can we can have or we can pin down or we can nail down or we can control and through that the work of meditation we find out that doesn't really exist, you know, it doesn't really exist. So we are looking for something, it's not that we are looking for something we can't have, because we are bad or we are stupid or we are anything but it's more like we are looking for something which doesn't exist and there's a difference you know looking for something we can't have or looking for something which does actually not exist at all this is much easier you know that that results into letting go actually because you find just you find out it doesn't exist it, it doesn't make any sense to look for it and I think that's what's you know what's is liberating because it's much easier to go with that you know to kind of let go into that yeah and we get the we get the experience once and then we start to change the way we relate to things so 
I, if you think back about the times when you've really wanted something, I can think back of really wanting to have a relationship with someone, and then there's so much um, stress really around falling in love, and is it going to work, and are they going to like me, and how's it, you know, like all of that stuff, and it's like looking for something that's really going to make me feel that safe, that happy, that you know, complete or whatever, however we want to think about it. And then what happens in two, three, two, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, maybe that relationship has evolved in a way that is more settled and really is co-supportive, but maybe not. And it's, it's like still, you know, the thing we're craving doesn't really manifest. There's always all these problems. There's always all this adjustment we have to make and it never really is quite like what we expected or what we hoped so that thing it doesn't really exist have you ever tried to like get something and then later you feel the burden of it you know you <laughs> want to just get rid of it it's like why am I dragging this thing around with me you know it's like whatever you know so to to really take that in and recognize there's nothing wrong of course, with having relationships and making them work and and supporting each other and being better in the world because you're together than you could be by yourself. But there's and there's also nothing wrong with having things that we can use and that are beneficial. But that clinging, that desire for it to be more than it actually can ever be, that's the problem. That's where where our desire and our disin what I want to say, our, our discontent comes from, because we really, we can't stay contented with something that can't really fulfill what we want it to fulfill. And so once we start to become realistic about what it is that this sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought can provide and what it can't, then we are much less likely to have that clinging, that craving, and and the nibbida comes in. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's also where, I think the Brahma-viharas are very important practices, you know, when when we experience that burning and, and all of that sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, as it said in the suttas, you know, to have uh, a sense of caring and kindness towards oneself and, and you know, and, uh, because so that we can actually stay with the process and, and stay witnessing what's happening because that very burning experience consciously is what changes us, you know. Because thinking about it alone is just not enough. We really need to experience it in our whole system. That uh, fact, you know, and then then it 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 it's kind of kind of becomes, uh, you know, it becomes part of our being or part of who we are. It's it's just like not. A knowledge, you know, we, we reflect upon in the moment, but it's just something which intuitively is understood and, and therefore, you know, we no longer can fall so deeply, you know, for this kind of 
ideals and ideas we have even you know ideals are also important as, as kind of guiding stars you know but do not hold on to them you know in a sense that that can ever be uh, fulfilled other than just in a moment you know there, there are moments of, of awe there are moments of uplift there are moments of great inspiration and they they are beautiful and they and they are also important on the path, but we can't nail them down. We can't, you know, we can't possess Put them, in a them. Box and save yeah. them and save them. No, we can't, you know. But we can cultivate that, and that's that's a very different thing than the sense pleasures. Right. So that's a very important distinction: what's spiritual pleasure and what's sense pleasure. What are, we, what are we desiring and what do we expect it to do for us? The spiritual pleasure actually leads, leads us onwards to awakening. That's a wholesome and, and positive kind of experience. And, and when you were talking about the Brahma Viharas, it's perfect because that helps to build up that kind of spiritual happiness and joy, selflessness. And it's, of course, not just for ourselves, which is extremely important, but also for others. So in this process of the burning, the burning of that lust or desire in wanting that relationship, and then to have compassion for oneself and also for the other person, even though you know at some point you might see only their flaws. This is one example I give when people say, well, how do I discover my delusion? Because delusion is that kind of thing where by its very nature, it's hard to see. And well, one, Clue, there are clues that we have delusion, and one clue is you can only see the good in someone. You can't see any of the flaws. That's that's the point where you fall in love, right? There, there's you can't see any of the downside. Then you know, six years later, you're looking at only the flaws, and there's still delusion, just as much delusion as there was before. But whenever we have that situation, like if I can only see the bad qualities of the contractor who cut the tree down, then I'm deluded. <laughs> you know, if I can take it all in, um, then I'm much more likely to have a clearer sense of what's really happening and also with what's possible. And also, you know, that's that's the way how how like, you know, that kind of possessive love, you know, of wanting one person, you know, and wanting to control that person and, and have that person to my own to, my, to myself and all of those ideas, you know, through the burning process, it 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 transforms into unconditional love because it's it's brought up to you know near it's brought up closer to reality, and then you you sit in that kind of in the tension, you know, between the idea and and and, and the reality, and then if you can allow that, it's gonna clear out, you know. And that's how, how the, that kind of possessive love gets transformed into unconditional love. And actually, you know, there are some Buddhist schools, you know, like the Tantric school of the Vajrayana, which works exactly with that, you know, in where even, you know, relationships are used between two people, you know, are used for that purpose, for example, you know, consciously. And, you know, it's one way of, of working with attachment also.
but we can experience it just you know in uh, yeah in daily life you know with with the people we we share less with and with anything with anything, anything we're attached to anything yeah. anything that hurts doesn't need to be can't be our car you know for example or whatever our dog can be our job yeah can be our house so mm -hmm. with all the fires we have now on the planet not just in california i hear i'm sorry to say yeah you know we here in california is quite cool in the mornings here you right know? now <laughs> yeah but the fires you know think about what it would feel like if your place burns down yeah, i know a couple who this was years ago they lived in the berkeley hills and they went to the beach one day and then their house burned down they came back there was nothing left almost Maybe. nothing left yeah and then you know I, over time i'm sure that was hard but they said that was really quite amazing um, the man was a professor and he said that's when he started writing before that, he was just always looking things up. He had this vast library. It all got burnt down. And now he just <laughs> started writing, you know? And they, they, really, they really took in the, the benefits of losing everything, that they could start fresh, that they could open up to a different way of living. And, you know, of course, all of their assets weren't in that house, so they were able to get another place to live, and I'm not trying to glorify tragedy either, because there are a lot of people on this planet who have nothing left when their house goes. And we, we want to have compassion and realistic concern for that, but to also just work in our own life, to know what am I attached to, what would I, what would I, what would I feel bad about losing and why? What do I feel like that's giving me? And just, just to, just to really loosen our grip on all of these things that ultimately when we die, we have to let go of anyway, every bit of it. And so by preparing, I know someone in this session mentioned that, you know, they've, and reflecting, maybe it wasn't, I don't know if it was this retreat or not, but when we reflect on these, you know, reflections that we've been chanting um, about aging sickness, death, and how everything we own is, is going to become otherwise, and all of the, what we take, the only thing we take with us is our, is our actions, the results of our actions. You know, when, when we reflect on that a lot, we're more prepared when things happen. And we can, we can be with them in a way that's realistic and yet stable. And then, you know, when we think about the world, the person's comment, as I recall it, said, but when I think about the devastation that we're experiencing through these cataclysmic weather events and and you know the fires and the things that are happening as a result of climate change and other ramifications, whether they're social or political, then then it's much harder. So now we need to reflect on that. 
You know, don't be afraid to look at reality. This is exactly what we need to do in order to transform internally. So we look at that. Okay, what happens if the worst occurs? What is the worst? You know, like, if our mind is stable, our heart is open, there is no worst. If we're living a good, virtuous life, then, you know, this body's going to end anyway. And whatever occurs, if we're not enlightened yet, there's a new beginning. If we are enlightened, it's complete peace. So it's like, this is what we need to really rely on, reflect on, and remember. And the love that we have for people, that, that unconditional love and kindness doesn't have the kinds of boundaries that we think of ordinarily of time and space and life and death. And that's where we, we need to put our, our energy and our effort. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.